Pathography. Once head of pathology, Professor Chess had stepped down from administrative duties a few years ago to concentrate on scholarship, something to do with soft tissue sarcomas, the minutiae of cell wall permeability, or whatnot. Arthur also had a reputation as a world traveler and an amateur lepidopterist. His treatise on the carrion-eating butterflies of Australia had been featured in the hospital gift shop alongside the usual paperback diversions. Arthur ate three bites of chicken and put down his fork. I really do hope this isn't an intrusion, Dr. Carrier. Uh, not at all, Dr. Chess. <laughs> Is there something you need? Need? Arthur was amused. No, just seeking a bit of social discourse. I've noticed that you tend to dine alone. My uh, schedule, lied Jeremy. Unpredictable. Since his life had gone to hell, he'd been avoiding social discourse with anyone but patients. He'd gotten to the point where he could fake friendly. But sometimes, on the darkest of days, any human contact was painful. Life's little wrist flick. Of course, said Chess. Given the nature of your work, that would have to be the case. Sir, said Jeremy. The unpredictability of human emotions. That's true. Arthur nodded gravely, as if the two of them had reached a momentous agreement. A moment later, he said, Jeremy, may I call you Jeremy? Jeremy, I noticed you weren't at our little Tuesday get-together this week. A uh, situation came up, said Jeremy, feeling like a child caught playing hooky. Our little Tuesday get-together was tumor board, a weekly ritual, 8 to 9 a.m., in the larger conference room. Arthur Chess presiding over a confab of oncologists, radiotherapists, surgeons, nurse specialists, commanding the slide projector, wielding a light wand, and his voluminous memory. For nearly a year, Jeremy had been the mental health army's representative. In all that time, he'd spoken up once. Arthur sectioned a tiny square of cornbread from the host slab and chewed thoughtfully. No loss for you, Jeremy, but I do believe that your presence contributes. Really? Even if you don't say much, the fact that you're there keeps the rest of us on our toes, sensitivity-wise. Well said Jeremy, wondering why the old man was bullshitting him so shamelessly. Anything that uh, helps sensitivity. The time you did speak up, said Arthur, taught us all a lesson. Jeremy felt his face go hot. I felt it was relevant. Oh, it was, Jeremy. Not everyone saw it that way, but it was. The time he spoke up had been six weeks ago. Arthur, flashing slides of a metastasized stomach carcinoma on the big screen, defining the tumors in the precise Latin poetry of histology. The patient, a 58-year-old woman named Anna Duran, had been referred to Jeremy because of unresponsive demeanor. Jeremy found her initially sullen. Rather than try to draw her out, he refilled her empty cup with tea, got himself coffee, plumped her pillows, then sat down by her bedside and waited, not caring much if she responded or not. It had been that way since Jocelyn. He didn't even try anymore. And the funny thing was, patients reacted to his apathy by opening up more quickly. Grief 
had made him a more effective therapist. Jeremy, flabbergasted, gave the matter some thought and decided patients probably perceived his blank face and statue posture as some sort of immutable, zen-like calm. If only they knew. By the time she finished her tea, Anna Duran was ready to talk, which is why Jeremy was forced to speak up twenty minutes into a contentious exchange between Mrs. Duran's attending oncologist and the treating radiotherapist. Both specialists were voluble men, well-intentioned, dedicated to their craft, but overly focused baby bathwater tossers. Complicating matters further, neither cared for the other. That morning, they'd slipped into an increasingly heated debate on treatment sequence that left the rest of the attendees peeking at their watches. Jeremy had resolved to stay out of it. Tuesday mornings were an annoyance, his turn the result of a mandatory rotation that placed him in too close proximity to death. But that morning, something propelled him to his feet. The sudden motion fixed fifty pairs of eyes upon him. Arthur Chess rolled the light wand between his hands. Yes, Dr. Carrier? Jeremy faced the sparring physicians. Gentlemen, your debate may be justified on medical grounds, but you're wasting your time. Mrs. Duran won't agree to any form of treatment. Silence metastasized. The oncologist said, and why is that, doctor? She doesn't trust anyone here, said Jeremy. She was operated on six years ago. Emergency appendectomy with post-op sepsis. She's convinced... That's what gave her stomach cancer. Her plan is to discharge herself and to seek out a local faith healer, a curandero. The oncologist's eyes hardened. Quaint and charmingly idiotic. Why wasn't I informed of this? You just were, said Jeremy. She told me yesterday I left a message at your office. The oncologist's shoulders dropped. Well then... I suggest you return to her bedside and convince her of the error of her ways. Not my job, said Jeremy. She needs guidance from you. But, frankly, I don't think there's anything anyone can say. Oh, really? The oncologist's smile was acrid. She's ready to see her witch doctor, then curl up and die. She believes treatment made her sick, and that more will kill her. It's a stomach carcinoma. What are we really offering her? No answer. Everyone in the room knew the stats. Stomach cancer so advanced was no grounds for optimism. Calming her down's not your job, Dr. Carrier, said the oncologist. What exactly is your job vis-a-vis -vis tumor board? Good question, said Jeremy. And he left the room. From that point on, he found excuses for missing the meeting. The thing is, said Arthur now, we cellular types get so immersed in details we forget there's a person involved. Jeremy said, Dr. Chess, I, uh, I just did my job. I'm really not comfortable being thought of as an arbiter of anything. Now, if you'll excuse me, of course said Arthur, unperturbed, as Jeremy bust his tray and left the dining room, mumbling something Jeremy couldn't make out. Later, much later, Jeremy was fairly certain he'd decoded Arthur's parting words. Until the next time. The way Jocelyn had died, the image of her suffering, 
was plaque on Jeremy's brain. He was never allowed to read the police report, but he'd seen the look in the detective's eyes, overheard their hallway conferences, sexual, psychopath, sadistic, one for the record book, Bob. Their eyes, to do that to a detective's eyes. Jocelyn Banks had been 27, tiny, curvy, bubbly, talkative, blonde, a blue-eyed pixie, a source of great comfort for the senescent patients she chose to care for. Ward 3E, all ye who enter here, abandon all reason. Advanced Alzheimer's, atherosclerotic senility, a host of dementias, undiagnosed, rot of the soul. Jocelyn worked a 3 to 11 p.m. shift, tending to vacant eyes, slack mouths, and drool-coated chins. Cheerful, always cheerful, calling her patients honey and sweetie, handsome, talking to those who never answered. Jeremy met her when he was called up to 3E for a consult on a new Alzheimer's patient and couldn't find the chart. The ward clerk was surly and intent on not helping. Jocelyn stepped in, and he realized this was the cute little blonde he'd noticed in the cafeteria. That face, those legs, that rear. <laughs> when he completed the consult, he went looking for her, found her in the nurse's lounge, and asked her out. That night her mouth was open for his kisses, breath sweet, though they'd eaten garlicky Italian food. Later, Jeremy was to know that sweetness as an internal perfume. They dated for nine weeks before Jocelyn moved into Jeremy's lonely little house. Three months after that, on a moonless Monday just after Jocelyn ended her shift, someone carjacked her Toyota in or near the too dark auxiliary nurse's parking lot, half a block from the hospital, taking Jocelyn with him. Her body was found four days later, under a bridge in the shallows, a borderline district within walking distance of the city's cruelest streets. She'd been strangled and slashed and wedged behind an empty oil drum. That much the detectives revealed to Jeremy. By that time the papers had reported those bare facts. A pair of detectives had worked the case. Doresh and Hoker, both beefy men in their forties with drab wardrobes and drinkers' complexions. Bob and Steve. Doresh had dark, wavy hair and a chin cleft deep enough to harbor a cigarette butt. Hoker was fairer, with a pig snout for a nose and a mouth so stingy, Jeremy wondered how he ate. Big and lumbering, both of them. But sharp-eyed. From the outset, they treated Jeremy like a suspect. The night Jocelyn disappeared, he'd left the hospital at 6.30, gone home, read and listened to music, and fixed dinner, and waited for her. The hedges that sided his tiny front lawn prevented his neighbors from knowing what time he'd arrived or left. The block was mostly renters, anyway, people who came and went, barely furnishing the uninviting bungalows, never taking the time to be neighborly. The late supper he'd prepared for two proved scant reassurance to detectives Bob Doresh and Steve Hoker, and, in fact, fed their suspicions. For at 3 a.m., well after verifying that Jocelyn hadn't taken on an emergency double shift, and shortly after phoning a missing person's report to the police, Jeremy had placed the uneaten pasta and salad in the refrigerator, cleared the place settings, washed the dishes. 
keeping busy to quell his anxiety. But to the detectives, such fastidiousness was out of character for a worried lover whose girl hadn't come home, unless, of course, said lover knew all along. It went on that way for a while, the two buffaloes alternating between patronizing and browbeating Jeremy. Whatever background check they did on him revealed nothing nasty, and a DNA swab of his cheek failed to match whatever they were trying to match. His questions were answered by knowing looks. They spoke to him several times in his office at the hospital, at his house, in an interrogation room that reeked of gym locker. Eventually, they left him alone. But the damage was done. Jocelyn's family had flown in, both her parents and her sister. They shunned him. He was never informed of the funeral. He tried to keep up with the investigation, but his calls to the detective squad were intercepted by a desk officer. Not in. I'll give him your message. A month passed. Three. Six. Jocelyn's killer was never found. Jeremy walked and talked, wounded. His life shriveled to something sere and brittle. He ate without tasting, voided without relief, breathed city air and coughed, drove out to the flatlands of the water's edge, and was still unable to nourish his lungs. People, the sudden appearance of strangers, alarmed him. Human contact repulsed him. The division between sleep and awareness became arbitrary, deceitful. When he talked, he heard his own voice bounce back to him, hollow, echoing, tremulous. Acne, the postulant plague forgotten since adolescence, broke out on his back and shoulders. His eyelids ticked, and sometimes he was convinced that a bitter reek was oozing from his pores. No one seemed repulsed, though. Too bad. He could have used the solitude. Throughout it all, he kept seeing patients, smiling, comforting, holding hands, conferring with physicians, charting, as he always did, in a hurried scrawl that made the nurses giggle. One time he overheard a patient, a woman he'd helped get through a bilateral mastectomy, talking to her daughter in the hallway. That's Dr. Carrier. He is the sweetest man, the most wonderful man. He made it to the nearest men's room, threw up, cleaned himself off, and went to see his next appointment. Six months later, he felt above it all, <laughs> below it all, inhabiting a stranger's skin, wondering...